Welcome to Between the Vines. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm here with Jennifer Phillips Russo and Dr. Jason Lundo. Jason has somewhat recently joined uh, Cornell Cal, so he's a new person for Cornell, but he's been with us for quite a while uh, working in Geneva. Um, and uh, his work has focused on a few different things, uh, you know, graft physiology, uh, but we're here to focus on at least my experience with Jason has been cold hardiness. And that's how we've worked with Jason in the past. And Jennifer has continued to really focus on that in the last two years uh, since we got a freezer at Clarell. So uh, we're gonna talk about some of the history of that work. And I think what has happened this year with some of the data uh, that's been gathered through that bud hardiness project and where also it might go in the future, which might look a little bit different than say the last 10 years. Um, so, Jason, if you uh, if you have any other further introdu introduction, I'd be more than happy to to give you the field. Um, but I know we've said that we're going to ask you some questions. So, yeah, um, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, and thank you a lot for joining us. It's great to have a guest on the on the podcast. We do try to do this once a week, and um, we definitely our growers see a lot of us every week, and yeah. it's great to have great to have the experts on as well. Um, but last week we actually did talk about bud hardiness uh, with our growers and essentially focused on what Jennifer has been doing the last year and particularly in the, this winter in terms of gathering data and the variety she was gathering data on and what those results look like. And basically, you know, I mean, if I could sum it up in 30 seconds, we didn't have any issues with winter injury this year. And, and I, as I recall, uh, it didn't even look like we had any issues in terms of we just never exceeded that LTE 50 at really any point on almost any variety. So right. I don't know if that's what you were seeing. Uh, you know, I don't know if the Finger Lakes or, or some of the other regions looked a little different than that. But I mean, that would be one thing I think that would be interesting. Well, we definitely had cold damage this year. It wasn't it wasn't really bad, but on the 16th and the 21st of January, we had two cold events that got real close to the LT50s for some of the less hardy vinifera. The hybrids are, were pretty fine, but the sequence of temperatures, we had a really mild early winter and then a pretty rapid descent in those first three weeks of January. And as a result, um, the damage is really localized, but we were seeing probably around 30 to 40% damage in things like Cap Franc, which is usually pretty hardy. A um, couple areas that got a lot higher damage, probably due to microclimate effects. Um, but then we also, using, using the cold hardiness uh, data, we would have predicted a lot higher damage than what we observed with bud cutting. And so there's still, we're still learning how to best interpret that. Um, the LT50s as it relates to the actual cold events. And as you can imagine, the duration of cold and the sequence of cold is very important and very hard to experimentally test. And so we're still working on trying to get the most accurate data out there. So I have a question. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. So when you are deciding to cut buds, what is your threshold of how far away from that LT50 are you looking at? Like, do you say, well, we hovered there for maybe three degrees for four hours, we should just go look? Or when do you go out and collect buds to cut? Well, when we, we saw the 
LT50 line intersect with the, the min oh, temperatures. And we said, okay. go out and cut buds. And then there were some uh, grower uh, contacts that were through Hans and Don, mm -hmm. who mentioned really high levels of damage in some areas around Cuca Lake. And it was much colder in Cuca Lake than it was up in Geneva. And so we used that as the way to go out and start cutting. I'm glad that you brought that up because that's what we tell our growers is this is where we're, what we're doing at Portland, you need to use it as a tool that we're getting close and you know you might get colder so go out and check your buds. Yes. So I'm just guessing here but on the 16th of January, did you feel like everything was fully acclimated so this was like a true winter injury event. So one of the things that I didn't get to talk about in the Bev talk just because of time was. The acclimation part of winter occurs in in the early part of winter, and then there's this transition to the deacclimation portion, which we're in deacclimation now. And all of the really good gains have to happen in that acclimation portion. The cold that we got on the 16th and the 21st were on the transition point between the acclimation and deacclimation. And so even though the cold was stimulating, it's sort of like the buds have already moved into a less responsive stage they're already moving out of that sort of like early response ability so they weren't able to turn as hard as they would have if we had gotten that cold earlier right so if we had had a colder end of november and december they would have been further down to begin with but they were all sort of coasting along like it was going to be a very mild winter across the board and when that that temperature ramp started they can't turn as sharp as they would have normally turned so what is your sort of gauge of like, what is early winter? Um, yeah. Have you guys talked about chilling hours? No, we've not. No. So chilling hours is sort of the amount of time that it is cool outside, but not freezing. So around between freezing and about 50 Fahrenheit. And the amount of time you spend in there in that time, in that temperature zone, it builds up through winter. And the shift between the sort of the early winter to late winter that happens roughly around 800 hours and you can just count them up as a as a rough way of doing it, we have models that do it. Um, and it's actually something I want to put on the website, so people know where we are. Yeah. Um, that transition period happens around 800 hours and typically in New York that transition happens between sort of like December 15th and January 15th. So if you get cold before December 15th, the vines can take better advantage. If you get cold after December 15th, it's sort of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And then once you get past January 15th, you have very, it's very, very difficult for them to gain more at that point because they've moved over to this later winter portion. So um, what triggers the start of chilling hours? Ugh. It's very complicated and, and there's lots of different ways to model it. We, I start counting in October, the 1st of October, and the way the chilling models work is you add them up for every hour that you're in that zone. If you're higher than that zone, you subtract them. And so because each fall is different, I will run the models forward and then find the point where they go net positive, right? Where they stop going in reverse. And then I start counting from there. And so usually that happens for us almost always by November 1st, we're going net positive. Mm -hmm. Usually by around October 15th, 
is a good point where we start going up. But with climate change, that shifts because the warmer our fall gets, the harder it is for them to, to sort of start that clock. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think one of the things we've seen in the spring with bud break and bloom and some of the models surrounding that, and it sounds like this is similar, is that climate change really tests sort of the validity of those models because before you could you could build a model and it would almost be like your theory would be based on calendar dates and it would refine it and give you a better result than calendar dates but you were you might go years with it truly being tested because we didn't have things like i don't know a random 70 degree degree day in november exactly <laughs> um, and i guess we did occasionally have those but they were so rare and now they seem to be almost commonplace where we have these kind of strange three or four day weather patterns that it's it I would imagine it's really testing the those models. Okay. Um, I had a quick question in regards yeah. to chilling hours. And when you start say you said mid October and by November first, does that correlate at all with like leaf fall, the general plants just ready to go in or no? So it's dependent a little bit on the background of the variety. So if you if you go out and you pay attention in the fall when the vines start to periderm when that cane starts to ripen what i've observed is that the viniferas will often periderm but not drop their leaves mm -hmm. but the hybrids will tend to periderm and drop their leaves and that harkens back a little bit to their heritage and that the hybrids are coming from a more northern mm -hmm. climate where the light change and temperature change happen together whereas vinifera were domesticated in europe where the light change is the same as here, but the temperature is much warmer. So their cues are a little bit different. They're both cueing off of light, but the hybrids are also using temperature. And so here you will see it correlate for, for hybrids, for particularly Northern hybrids, not so much for the Southern hybrids. If you look at Cayuga white, for example, um, it doesn't do a good job of paying attention to either and you'll get very bad paraderming. Right. And it, it's its background is from a southern vitus. So it its cues are different and we don't have the right cues here. And so that shut down, we don't know how it's gonna change, but as you break apart the linkage between changes in light and changes in temperature and, and start to vary them, they're gonna act funky. So it's tricky to test this stuff, right? Because yeah. because it, every year is a little different, but but that's what we think is happening. That's cool. So Jason, just to back up a little bit and sort of maybe get out of the weeds a little bit, because sometimes what the growers mm -hmm. really care about is is like what's happening this year. Um, sure. Although I think, you know, going forward, I, I love a little bit of transparency in the model so I can figure out how it makes sense on my farm and, you know, where, where I might need to troubleshoot and do, you know, real testing on my farm to sort of see how it would differ. Uh, but when you said that you saw damage in the Finger Lakes on Vinifera, the, the model indicated it would be around 50%. Did I sort of hear that correctly? It depends on the variety. Sure. But our, so no, the model, the model didn't predict anything. The LT, the cold hardness monitoring right. we did, right? Right. Um, predicted that there was enough cold to, to definitely create at least 50% damage. In some cases, it went right through even the LT90, which would, if we were 100% sure that this was the, the direct field measurement, we would say 100% dead. Mm -hmm. But because it's always an estimate, every collection is an estimate, and every vineyard is in its own microclimate, 
when that intersection occurs, we just know that there's enough damage to make it worth going out and cutting the time for the growers to cut the buds and verify on their own site um, what those numbers look like. So, so in this event, what kind of damage levels were you seeing in the commercial vineyards? For most, for most of what we were cutting, we saw around 30 to 40% damage. And so the varieties differ. We did a bunch, we did a couple of bud cutting episodes with growers. Hans set them I up. heard about that. I would love to do that simple. Yeah. <laughs> so what we saw there is people would bring in their own cuttings of their varieties and we would show them how to cut the buds and look for damage. And we were seeing things like 30 to 40% damage on things like Merlot, Cap Franc, Gewürztraminer and Sauvignon Blanc in Geneva got annihilated. Um, close to the, close to the station. Um, those are typically not very cold hardy. Things like Syrah would have been damaged. What we didn't see a lot of damage in was things like Riesling, Chardonnay. Um, we didn't do any cutting of, of the Eastern uh, vinifera like Arquetelli or Saparavi, any of those, but I would not expect those to suffer damage. Again, not with the hybrids because they tend to be better prepared. For sure. Right. And I'm assuming the the bud hardiness um, that you were working on where you you collect hybrids and chill them, you didn't see anything that would indicate damage, right? Right, yeah, the, our, our estimates of field hardiness were below the, the critical temperature. The, the tricky thing with the temperature is it was only four hours on the 21st, which was the bigger event. There were four hours where we went below the predicted LT50. So the temperature. So the tricky thing is, is the air temperature at the weather stations went below. The temperature inside the bud where the freezing is going to happen is going to lag slightly from the air temperature because it because the tissue has to equilibrate. And we don't know how the freezing event in the field, how the timing of it is different from our test in the in the freezer, right? So in the freezer, we cool at one single rate four degrees per hour in the field, it cooled in a couple different steps, right? And so it could be that the the rate of freezing in the field gives you added protection because it might have been slower than what we do in the in the lab. And so that's the discontinuity between the monitoring and the, the real world that we can't really get around. And the experiments to get around it are actually really difficult to do because they involve holding buds at different temperatures for very different amounts of time and still being able to read the data and it without getting too in the weeds on that it's it's hard to do and we haven't done it yet right well yeah i mean i could just imagine because i mean you you sort of have to run i mean you can just imagine how many variables there are that might affect this and you know i think in commercial vineyards we've seen and observed sort of how it affects it but that doesn't really help us model what it would really look like and what it takes just there was a factor that changed that obviously wouldn't exist in a freezer whether it's high wind or how fast it chilled and you know how do you how do you replicate that in a way or or you know quantify it while trying to control for all those things so um we actually get that question a lot where people growers will ask us so i know we hit that but we only just hit it briefly for 15 minutes and how much do we have to hold there for how long before we see damage have you done any work on that no okay. no because part of the part of the trickiness is that when we do the field sampling 
and we give you an LT50 of negative 20, it's not that every bud we collected froze at negative 20. It's that that was the mean out of all the buds we collected. Right. And so in, there are some buds that are dying at negative 20 and some buds that are not. And so the duration is another nuance to that sort of variation that we can't, it's really hard to nail that down that 15 minutes or an hour is enough because it could just be that there's at the vineyard level, there could be an eddy of warm air that moves through that relieves that pressure just enough, right? right? And so it should only be used as a guide that now you should just take that extra time to go out and see where you're at. And hopefully you're, you're totally solid, um, but it should never be used as a, as an all or nothing. Right. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Hopefully nobody's back. using it that way. That way. Um, but well, we like exacts, right? Yeah. We're very comfortable with exacts. And so I get why the, the need is there, but it's, um, that we would be doing a disservice if we were trying to put it in that kind of terms. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there has been one or two cases since I started working where the bud hardiness, you could you could take that data and say, I can pretty much guarantee that there is damage. Um, but that's because it was such an extreme event. And and there, you know, most of the time we're playing on the edge here, like like what happened in the Finger Lakes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I still think it's, you know, I think we all think it's really useful. I think we've seen growers identify this project as really useful and that might be a nice segue to some of the efforts you've been attempting to make, which, it, you know, it sounds like it's been difficult work to get something that really um, growers can count on, but but where this is headed in the future uh, and where it might not just be collections at a particular site like a, the Geneva Experiment Station or One Grower's Vineyard or Clarel. Um, like, so what would we, how would you solve that? Or how are you trying to solve that? Well, I would say we'll probably, for the rest of my career, we'll probably be monitoring as part of my program because like what you mentioned in the beginning, we used to be able to use calendar days, calendar days to predict things because the climate was more stable. Right. And so when you have a history of very stable climate, you can use calendar days, right, to predict things. Right. But then things start getting choppy. And just just like that, our understanding of cold hardiness is built on the same framework, right? Everything we've known to this date has been on a mostly stable climate and one that's starting to shift. And so we'll probably continue to measure until I retire someday, just because I'm sure it's going to change a bit as we go on and as we learn. But what we're doing is we're using all of this data to build this model, this Eastern model, so that when we predict cold hardiness, we wanna be able to predict cold hardiness within a certain error percentage, right? Within a couple degrees of, of what the field hardiness is. So that when we predict at Portland or at Geneva that there was, was too cold for an LT50, you can pull up your own weather data, run the model, and your microclimate may be different. You may have a warmer climate or a colder climate, but you can then run the model instead of having to send samples. And the model will tell you, you're, you should be fine. You're, you know, because we don't have data from your vineyard itself, but we have confidence in this model's predictive power that now you can use your local data, check your own, 
and say, okay, well, Portland was too cold, but I'm fine. Or Portland looked like it was too cold and we got way colder. So we definitely want to go out and sample. So hopefully we can provide a tool that people can use at their local level um, and have a greater confidence in what they've got going. And Jason, this model is going to tell you the same thing, right? Like now it's time to cut buds and see what happened. Yes. Yep. It will tell you it. Unfortunately, it's not a proactive solve of cold events, right? It's a reactive response. But the what we hopefully be able to do is increase sort of like our predictive power across New York State, right? When I, for example, when we do this in Geneva, and it is so much colder in Branchport and Cuca, our data is only so helpful, right? Because right. Because it's it's a different weather, right? They got colder weather, and same thing if you go to the east side of of Seneca or you go to the east side of Lake Erie, and you have that microclimate, it's going to be much more mild. And so, the model is only needs to be developed in order to cover sort of the diversity of where people are growing varieties, and also the diversity of the varieties they grow, right? The model will hopefully capture the nuances of both the gaining of cold hardiness and the losing of cold hardiness at the cultivar specific level. So we won't have sort of a general Concord model and we use Concord for every hybrid and Chardonnay for every vinifera. We, we are working to fine tune this as much as possible at the cultivar level so people can know what is going on in their vineyards now, but also so we can do future scaping. So if we start using predicted changes in temperatures, climate predict predictions, we can model where different varieties will be successful or not as the climate changes. That's the hope anyway. I think that's really cool. And I'm really proud that our area is helping with mm -hmm. that model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's cool too. I do have one question as so like why it's necessary and I don't mean this to be tongue in cheek, but <laughs> intellectually, I did not understand why we need an East Coast model. And I don't know if you know why, like I know that the errors there, you talked about that at Bev, how if you use the West Coast model here, it doesn't work. Do you have any idea why? Why it in particular fails? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, maybe we're colder here, but the model I would assume could easily account for something as simple as cold. So do you have any? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a little different. So, and I'm going to think about how to say this without being too nerdy. The model in Washington was built off of historical observations, right? So they collected cold hardiness data for 10, 15 years for given varieties, and they have the climate data. And they basically put that in a computer and chug it, right? And so the computer looks for factors in the climate data that help describe the shape of cold hardiness across years. Mm -hmm. And then it creates a bunch of parameters, like parts of an equation that will tell you how to draw that curve. The reason it works in Washington is because the climate is the same in Washington. So they, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, but they don't understand the biology of why the curve is forming. They just understand the pattern of the curve in their climate. So when you move that here, our climate is different enough that the assumptions of how you draw that shape don't fit anymore. And so when you draw that shape here, you predict a lot more cold hardiness in the early winter and a lot more in the late winter, about the same in midwinter, but that's because we're pushing up against sort of biology 
right. everywhere. But these other two portions, they don't work here because our climate is variable. It could be humidity. It could be the oscillations of temperature. It could be solar exposure. There's a whole bunch of things that go into it that is screwing up that models working here. So you say that model also doesn't work very well in the Midwest or Colorado. So it's not that New York is uniquely broken as this model has seen it. Right. It's just that it works well where it was developed. Regional effects. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense for the purposes of, you know, the researcher that was doing that work in Washington. He built a model for Washington. It worked for Washington. He didn't mm -hmm. over engineer it so that it would work everywhere. But I guess it does bring up another question. Um, about half of our listeners are not from the Lake Erie region, and almost all of them are really not from the area. We get a few in the Finger Lakes and in Pennsylvania, but uh, once you leave the Lake Erie region, it you, you know you might get as many listeners here in France or Australia as you do, um, you know, Pencil southeastern Pennsylvania. So, um, are you trying to do something more difficult here? Like you mentioned earlier, you're trying to create an East Coast model. Are you trying to create an East Coast model? Or are you trying to create something that will work everywhere or more places? Yeah. We're trying to create something that will work everywhere. Okay. But we're trying to fix the problems of the East Coast. I would <laughs> phrase it that way. Um, but if it works everywhere, great. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that is tricky is it's hard to get data on the same cultivars in multiple regions because everybody has sort of like a regional panel that they use. And so our model will be tested on as many data sets as we can get our hands on to make sure that we aren't missing something to make it work in Ohio, to make it work in Colorado. Um, would love to see how this works in Europe. Um, right now, I think they have candles in their vineyards because they're experiencing another major frost event. And we really think that our deacclimation work could be useful there for predicting frost protection. And so we would love it for, to be working everywhere. One thing we know that we've run into already is that when we use our model to try to predict Long Island's cold hardiness, it falls apart in late winter because Long Island accumulates that, remember I mentioned that chilling? Yep. Long Island, because it has that maritime environment, it is always chilling. It gets so many chilling hours that our model predicts that they basically deacclimate and start bud break by early January. Uh -huh. Which clearly they don't, but that's because that's because this the way our model works with these adding these two different parts together based on this chill model. Okay, that's something we have to fix, but we can't fix it until we have data from Long Island or from somewhere else like Long Island showing us how the points change and showing us how our predictions based on the biology that we understand whether they hold or not. We're very confident in biologically what our vines are doing. Getting that into a predictive model is where we're trying to figure out which parts are working, which parts are not, and which is part of the reason, unfortunately, it's taken us this long. I think I've been talking about this model now for probably four or five years. It's taken us this long we, to get it out. Um, I mean, I can run it on my computer, but it we don't want to give it to growers in this current format, which until is until it works, right? <laughs> but it's but it's doing better than that Western model by quite a bit for the our test cultivars, and so we. I mean, it's going to work. Mm -hmm. We just need to get it to work in as many possible places as possible. That was a lot of possible. That was a lot of possible. <laughs> so I have a question about Long Island. If they were to cut buds and overnight them, would mm -hmm. there be a degradation in the overnight 
for us to run them where your station or my station, or could we do it with confidence? Yeah, so we, we actually have a paper in review. Hopefully it's in review. I haven't heard anything, but we submitted a paper testing this. And yes, you can ship them. Okay. You should ship buds overnight and they should be sent in like a cooler with uh, cool packs, not freeze packs. You want the cooler to stay as cool as possible. And the de the deacclimation they would experience in that period is not enough to really screw up your data. Oh, nice. It's about one degree drift. The later you go in the year, the worse it is because they, the more they respond to temperature and so outside. So yeah, you can do it. And we, so we did this experiment and we shipped canes to Washington and they shipped to us. And we also shipped to Wisconsin and they shipped to us and we tested both directions and, um, yeah, you, it works. Oh, cool. The, the punchline is yes, it can work. Um, the key is getting the stuff from the field and getting it overnighted so, to a lab that can process it the next morning. It can it can go longer if you put them in the cooler. They actually do pretty well if you keep them cool. But for the most accurate data, you want to try to do it within twenty four hours. That's cool. Jen, do you have any more questions? No, Jason I and I are hanging out today, working on our data. Awesome. So we've been talking back and forth, and I don't know what we've covered and what we haven't. But I appreciate your questions that you're giving. <laughs> thank you, um, Jason. Really, thank you for joining us. Um, it's been great. I think, you know, our growers are really looking forward to this model. And in the meantime, they're going to continue to value the bud hardiness data, which, I mean, I know Jennifer works really hard on that data. Um, but um, right before she started, we bought a freezer and it, you know, we wouldn't be able to use it and get that data out without that collaboration. So, um, yes, we can get more data now because we can do it on our, she can do it on our, her own but it has been great to have that collaboration. And it sounds like also it will be really helpful in building that model that we're looking forward to. So all great news. And um, to our listeners, thank you again for joining us. We'll be back next week with, with another podcast. If you have anything you want covered, please feel free as always to contact us and we'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. Thank you.